Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. Uh, today, before I get into our show, I want to mention that Ronaldo is now tweeting uh, information on a regular basis, and if you'd like to listen to or read his tweets, go to RonaldoBrutico at twitter.com. You can also check for more information in general each month at the World Business Academy website, and that is www.worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering a number of topics uh, along with our lightning round. As always, we're going to include your questions and comments from our audience. So if you'd like to place a question, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Um, again, as always, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas that you can use in today's environment. Today we're going to be focusing on a number of very uh, serious questions. And the first one, which is Ronaldo's phrasing, is, why a double-dip recession is likely our best outcome, and what else is lurking out there that's better and worse. Second topic is going to be how do we know the market has peaked. During our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, we're again going to go back to focusing on gold and is it safe to buy gold. During our financial literacy section of the call, Ronaldo and I will continue discussing bond literacy. This time we're going to talk about the concept of yield to maturity, which allows us to essentially compare bonds of different durations, coupon yields, and quality, a little bit like comparing apples and oranges. How do you do that in an effective way that actually makes sense and is thoroughly understandable? Now, Ronaldo, as we've always said, one of the purposes of these calls is to present our members with clear, concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business, I'm sorry, to business and society. Can you expand on this today and for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails during these economic times of chaos and uh, perhaps crisis? Thank you, Howard. I'd, I'd love to do that. It's a great way to start, actually, because um, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, you, you've been feeling a lot of stress over what you've been watching, as have I. And uh, to me, what's going on in the United States and, frankly, overseas, it's like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion. Um, I say that because what we want our listeners to this call to know is that we are looking at the academy. We look at fundamental things. We, we look at real fundamentals. We're looking at the way people interact in individual behavior, collective behavior, etc. And from that observation, those series of observations, we try to conclude what is likely to happen, what's more likely to happen or less likely to happen in the economy at large and in other key sectors of both the domestic economy and, uh, and in the global economy. So we often get into politics, not because we are interested in doing politics as our reason for the show. This is, this is about uh, business and society, uh, but because politics is so um, caught up now in the very survival of the fabric of the domestic economy, that it's impossible to talk about the economy without talking about politics. 
And what I would like people to realize is um, I, I issued a statement a week ago Monday, so um, the end of August, I issued a statement that I thought it was time to short the S&P, which is a way of saying I thought the market had peaked. And we're going to talk about that in the other second half of the show. But what I did, that, I did that, and I was told by uh, Stewart at the time, G. Ronaldo, but the chart says we're going to be a kind of a classic, you know, bottom here in a trough, and we're at a new support level, and it's going to go up, and, and isn't that going to happen? I said, no, Stuart, it's not. And the reason it's not going to happen is because that chart, all that data you're looking at is you're viewing it from a historical perspective of all other things being equal, in quotes. Well, all the things could, are not. If I can mention one quick thing, Ronaldo, if you any time you ever purchase a mutual fund or any other advisory fund of any sort, there's always a disclaimer which says past performance is not an indicator of future results. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that's a you, classic Howard. statement. That we're always looking backwards. Yeah, and, and, and that's what's perfect. And I think that's what I wanted to touch on with my opening remarks is that there's there are times when we when, when things happen where cyclicality. I touched on this in the last show. You know, where you get things that are called inventory cycles or you get normal recessions, et cetera. I believe that everybody who's relatively thoughtful, and I'm leaving out of that equation anybody who looks at economics for their own political reasons rather than for what's really on the table, I think any thoughtful observer with any degree of skill and impartiality would conclude that this recession that we went through, we called it the Great Recession at the time, is highly unusual. And it's clearly not over. I mean, it, it, we, we got out of it. We restored growth. I'm not challenging that. But what we did is we came out of it with so little momentum and such a shallow trajectory that when the most aggressive pieces of the support system to get us out of that ended, we started to fall backwards. And as the bickering in Washington, which is unforgivable over the debt ceiling, took its full impact, the public realized, oh, my God, no one's in charge, and that includes the President of the United States. So the, 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 the problem is you've got an obstructionist Congress that wants to destroy the economy, in my humble opinion, so they can win the White House and the Senate at the next election. I think that's what's motivating it. So they, they, they are saying things that they know aren't true. They're blocking actions that they know we need to take. They're refusing to acknowledge the successes that have occurred, the, the automobile industry being the biggest one, of course, one of them. Um, and in the result of all that, together with other pressures we'll probably get to in the show, which is going on with the banking industry, other pressures going on in Europe, other pressures going on in China. When you put all these together, the public went, oh, my God, no one's leading us, and we're in trouble, and we're still unemployed. Now we are going to stop spending. By the way, they, one thing the public has done very well, Howard, most people might not notice this, we've dropped the amount of private debt again last month. So many months in a row now, households have been reducing their debt, even with their meager um, uh, their meager salaries from the unemployment. So I mean, we're, we're really in good both shape as there. A, couldn't that be seen both as a plus and minus in that they may be reducing their debt, but they're not spending out of fear, which has two consequences. One, it doesn't stimulate growth in an economy. And two, um, it reinvigorates this cycle of fear. Yeah, I, I think uh, and, and, and fear, you know, I think consu we talked about this earlier before the show, that consumer sentiment is what's known as a trailing indicator, I meaning it happens after the fact. But I think in this case, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, if consumers and, and the American public in general have this enormous sense of fear about everything, um, they're not going to be out there spending money even on things they might want in normal times. Well, uh, and correct. therefore that slows the economy down. 
Yeah, but here, but the reality is, this is where I can the, fund, the fundamentals are a double dip is the best option we have. We're going, we're going back into recession if we're not there already. History will reflect that. Unless something happens right away, and I'm not seeing the probability of that as being very high. Because even if the speech is a knock-em-out-of-the-box speech today, most people, I'm going to say 80% of the public in the United States, thinks that Obama is a great speaker and they like him. The problem is he doesn't back up his speech with actions. So the speech is going to be less significant, because people have already discounted it, than what he does following that speech. And what, what, what the public's looking for is what I would call a wartime leader. In other words, they're looking for a give him hell Harry. They're looking for someone who took um, Eisenhower or Kennedy, who took the Cold War and turned it into a vehicle to create domestic employment, giant infrastructure projects like the interstate highway system, getting a man on the moon. I mean, the people who did this, the, the presidents who did this, used the Cold War as a way to do strengthening within the United States to grow a stronger country. What's happening now is the it, because the Republicans are insisting on destroying Obama's record and taking him down and capturing the White House, Lord knows if they're going to really want it at that point, because of all that, what's going to happen is that the people who are able to hold a job are going to say, you know what, i got to start cutting all of my spending because I, I might get fired too. I better get my liquidity up because I don't know what's going to happen. So the fear that something's going to happen bad actually is not irrational if something bad is on the way, and something bad is on the way. In fact, something bad has been happening for a long time. So we're at a stage now where, short of dramatic action, I don't believe the double dip can be avoided. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm hopeful there will be dramatic action. But if there is modest action, and we can just kind of slowly pick it up a little bit, conceivably we could avoid it, but I sort of doubt it. Because states and local governments have been firing people, the federal government for that matter, for much longer during this recession than, than the private sector has been able to hire. So your point, Howard, is if people are out of jobs or if they're afraid of being out of jobs, if they raise their savings level by reducing their current debt burden, that cuts consumption, which it does. By cutting consumption, it further tightens the vicious cycle of an economic downward spiral. You're correct. That's what happens. But on a micro level, on the individual level, the me, Ronaldo, with you, the Howard level, it would be prudent of me to get liquid. It is prudent of me to be conservative at this point. It is right, prudent of me to get out of the market. Isn't that a horrible catch-22 situation for a country where the country needs each individual to be out there being confident, and yet each individual needs to be doing the reverse? In terms well, of their and, spending and, and, and saving. It is, that's a, it that's is. a difficult challenge. Well, it is a difficult challenge. And, and, and go one step further. People like me, and I'm basically, I, I want to be an optimist. I, I want to see how the glass is half full. But that people like me can't rally people and say, yep, it's going to be great. We got, there's a plan. You don't see it coming yet, but we're going to get lifted out of this recovery, and we're going to get lifted into better economic times, et cetera, which we're capable of, by the way. All of that we're capable of. I'd love to be the cheerleader for growth. I'd love to be the cheerleader who says, hey, we got the worst times that are behind us. They're not. Well, so let me the fact ask you that I can't question. go on air and say that is troubling, too, I think. Let me ask you a simple question. Do you think tonight's speech by the president in his role as our commander-in-chief is going to set a course um, that's going to take us right through the election next year? Is this 
what he has to say going to be the determining factor in whether we start pulling out faster or slower or not at all? Yeah, again, I, I, I don't think what he says is going to be as important as what he does because that's where the disconnect is for people in his leadership. Right. So, well, do you think do you think he will have the ability first that he's going to lay out things that can be done, and two, will he have enough support? Oh, I, I to think he's had the I, Howard. I think he's had the ability all along to change the result. I, I think his problem is he's addicted to his own political ideology. I think he would rather be consistent with his own political ideology than actually solve the problem. And his ideology, I would characterize as follows: He believes it's his job to be a consensus builder. That he's trying to appeal like a professor to our, 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 our more noble sides, to our higher being. He, he wants to appeal to the fact that we can theoretically come together and, and when we're challenged as a nation. Well, we sort of can, but it's going to only happen with leadership. It's not going to happen by him rolling over every time the Republicans want to roll him. And so he's got a problem. He's got to be willing to be stronger as a leader if he's going to lead us. And what the public has concluded, correctly I believe, is he's not leading. Now, he has led in the past, but he, he stopped quite a long time ago and, and I don't think he's sophisticated, as I've said in other programs before. I don't think he's very economically sophisticated, or he wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. So this is a situation today where I believe that what he does following the speech will be so closely monitored. Can he get some things done? Yes, I think he's got plenty of power that he could have used a long time ago. Uh, you, you've heard my theory on the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that when the debt ceiling crisis hit, he should have gone on the air a week before August 3rd and said, hey, all you folks who are waiting for Social Security checks – on August 3rd, or veterans' benefits, or Medicaid. Any of you are waiting for government checks of those types, I want you to know we're not going to be able to send them on August 3rd unless these ten congressmen get out of the way. Starting with Eric Cantor, here's his phone number. Here are the other nine guys behind him. Now, would you please call them and tell them you want your check? i got to tell you, those ten guys would have caved because they would have seen the full onslaught of American anger. Well, what... What the president hasn't done is he hasn't focused the frustration and the anger because he's not leading us, and he's got to start leading. So if building consensus is his ultimate objective, that's not working. Hasn't worked, isn't going to work, and the public knows it because the public perceives that the political process is now broken. So what the public's saying is whoever will stand up and try and lead us out of this mess, we're going to get behind. And it, it, they could be easily confused and pick the wrong side. And we'll get more Hoover economics, which is what's okay. doing it to us now. As you're talking about in, in, in the very topic, uh, that it's a double dip is maybe the best outcome. When we're listening to the speech tonight, or when we're watching to see what happens and unfolds in the next few weeks, next few months, what are the key points that are going to push us in one direction or another? Okay, uh, let, beginning let, tonight. Yeah, and let me list what's better that's lurking out there is if he gets $300 billion, which is the number that's being rumored of, of additional stimulus through, particularly if it's tied to direct construction projects, infrastructure projects, et cetera, which we've long advocated in the academy. If that were to happen, by the way, and, 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 and there needs to be a revenue increase, there absolutely has to be a revenue. The problem with the country right now is that the revenue got slashed under Bush 1, and then the Medicare entitlement benefit, which was a huge expense, got put on top, and then two wars that were unfunded. That's we're broke because we're not collecting enough revenue, not because we're spending too much. We don't have right. a deficit I'll, problem; we got a collection problem. But I will mention a number. Hmm? I mentioned a number of uh, charts that we saw late in August as the uh, debt ceiling was being debated. These were figures that came both uh, through our research at Morgan Stanley and also from Congressional Budget Office. And it was just simply three simple charts. Um, and I'd love to hear your comments on that relative to our topic. 
The first one showed our debt as a measure against gross domestic product. And though our debt ceiling was high, it was not outside normal ranges. Second chart showed collection of tax revenue as a measure against gross domestic product. And what it showed was that up until 2000, we were in a fairly normal range and that after the Bush tax cuts, revenue collection dropped as a percentage to almost all-time lows. And the third page showed the measure of partisanship uh, in both the House and Senate as determined by their respective votes on issues, but the charts went back to 1870, which is the era of Reconstruction following the Civil War. And the partisanship measure showed us at almost all-time highs, both in the House and Senate, in terms of disagreement and policy on votes. The very last factor in that, when you looked at projection of the deficit going ahead with no revenue collection coming in, or minimal revenue collection, showed this expanding deficit going haywire. And one takeaway from that seems to be, and again, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is the problem is not so much debt, but collection of, t- of income for running a government. Yeah. Um, let me let me segue to that by finishing the answer to the first question, which is what's, what's worse that's out there, because you'll see how it ties in a second. What's worse that's out there is something much worse than the Great Recession we just came through, conceivably a depression. If people want to know more about that, ask a question. I'll be happy to fill you in. But I am looking at, at economic conditions that are becoming severe, and that's why I called it a, a train wreck, watching a train wreck in slow motion. What's better out there is he gets the $300 billion, he gets some kind of a jobs bill through, he gets the payroll tax extension, so that that continues for another year, and we skid along the bottom, but we start to pull up as confidence starts to rebuild because people then believe they're being led. So what's out there is a much rosier future. Um, I, if we don't have time, Howard, on the next show, I want to talk about why we are not structurally in a problem with our deficit, which is what you're talking about, why what we did, we created, and how we could create boom times in America, not just good times, boom times in America, mm-hmm. if we would take the right policies. Your charts are reflecting accurately, particularly the third one, where you're talking about people's um, the partisanship, the, the, the vitriol, the attacking that's going on on two sides. And I think it's interesting that it's the highest it's ever been because you would think that the Civil War could never have been close to equal with that kind of adversity between disparate groups of Americans. You, you can, I can't imagine – I mean, literally, what would be worse than what we have today is people start shooting at each other again, right? Isn't that what your chart says? That's, that's almost what we're saying, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, think about what that means. And by the way, there's a lot of that thinking going on right now. If you haven't seen it, the rise of militias in the United States, armed militias, getting, it's getting crazy, okay? You know, it's uh, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of people like Sarah Palin and, and you know, it, 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 it don't react, reload. And, and, you know, and some of the, uh, the crazy things that are getting said, particularly on the right wing, where they're talking about, you know, um, having to take people down in, in, in ways that are totally inappropriate. I was, I was watching that um, Labor Day speech that Hoffa gave that just before the president in which he clearly said that it was time to go to the ballot box and take the, the, the Republicans down who've been trying to destroy the labor movement. Fox edited the ballot box part out so it, to make it sound like he's suggesting violence against Tea Party people, when what he was suggesting is taking the country back through the ballot box. That level of distortion created, when you mix it with fear, and bad economic times is incendiary. Incendiary means you could have a situation where people 
starts shooting at each other. And by the way, some of these random shootings, like the one that just happened uh, a couple of days ago um, at the IHOP restaurant, where the guy went in and, and basically aimed at five soldiers. Least, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's always been crazy people in society. It hasn't been but a few years that crazy people have had the access to AK-47s, which assault rifles have no place. I mean, there's no sporting purpose for an assault rifle but to shoot people. Well, that so, reflects so we, a bumper sticker I saw driving home yesterday, which said, I love America, I fear my government. Well, I, yeah, that's, fear, that's another example. Fear is a great tool for getting people to do what you want when it's anti what's ever going on. People it's a great forget rallying cry. how national socialism, people even forget that the words national socialism was the name of the Nazi party, by the way. People forget how national socialism started in Germany. It started because of unemployment. It started because of the wreckage of World War I. It started because people were hungry and the political system wasn't responding and it was bickering. And a guy came out of the woodwork who was willing to basically pander to people's fears, give them new hope, and instill in them a level of sense of certainty of outcome that they followed them to the ends of the earth and destroyed their nation in the process. Adolf Hitler only could have done what he did because of the conditions that were seated and waiting for him at the end of the Weimar Republic. We are sitting here in the United States where civil unrest is not that far away, where we have literally more guns than people. Now, if people want to have a rifle to go shoot ducks or pheasants or whatever, you know, I'm not for it, but I'm not against it. And there's plenty of ways you could do that as a sportsman or deer or whatever. By the way, I do think it's a problem that some 20 states now have captive game reserves where they basically hold the game so you can't miss them. It's like a shooting gallery. But, but putting that aside, for legitimate sporting purposes, there's not a problem. But there's a reason why Wyatt Earp, when he was sent to clean up Tombstone, Arizona, said, you know, the first thing we've got to do is you guys got to chuck your, ga- your guns at the city line because the only reason to have a gun in, in Tombstone is if you're going to shoot some other person and we don't want any more shooting of people going on. And literally, Wyatt Earp put that in place. Now, you could get your gun when you left town, because you're out in the country. It seems to me that people have to start being rational about, um, do we want background checks when crazy people try to buy AK-47s, or don't we? Do you want to live in a country where they don't do that? Now, I understand the rhetoric of the Second Amendment crowd, but at the end of the day, this is not about a Second Amendment issue. This is about safety, public safety. And, and, and we, I don't even want to get going on the Second Amendment. I just want to talk about where we are with those charts that show this enormous amount of vitriol between the, the political parties and how ineffective Obama has been in dealing with it. If that, if that level of vitriol is what he is dealing with, and if that is what's holding our country back, then it is his job to overcome it. He right. doesn't have the option of being a, a professor. We do have a question popping up on our screen. Sure. I'm going to open up the line, and then after this question, we probably should segue to our uh, other segments of the show and then come sure. back to this afterwards. But the call is coming in from area code 455, and the last digits are 0286. You're live now. Go ahead. Hello. This is yet Isabella Servant from Denmark. Hello, uh, yet. Hello, yet. I'm on a, yes, hello. How are you? I hope you are fine, both of you. And uh, I'll just say that uh, thank you, Rinaldo, because uh, it has been a very um, important uh, event for me to learn to know you because you have really saved my economy 
uh, twice. Uh, first, before the 2008, when you told me to sell my 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 shares and my stocks, you know, uh, because you said it, there was a crisis coming up, a world crisis which was more serious than the one in 1930, and you advised me to buy gold instead. And I did that, and my bank in Copenhagen thought I was crazy, and everyone around me said I was crazy, there would no, be no crisis and, and all that stuff. But anyway, it showed up that you were right, and it happened, and uh, I have saved my economy because of you. And the and second then, time was, uh, yes? No, good. And the second Hello? time was a couple weeks ago. Uh, well, it's only, I think, uh, is it three, four weeks ago? Yeah, three, four before, weeks ago, yes. The, you know the 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 this uh, voting of the of this the, this uh, the debt ceiling and uh, it was the day before and your secretary called me and said that she should uh, say hello from you and that I should uh, I was in the U.S. at that uh, time and I was going to have a meeting with you in Santa Barbara but it was the day before and she said that uh, she you sent uh, uh, your regards but you that I should sell my my uh, stocks immediately. Uh, and I said, can it wait until tomorrow when we have a meeting? And she said, no, you have to. We think we ha- you have to do it now. And I used the whole night uh, to sell my my stocks because uh, uh, you know we are nine hours ahead in Denmark, and my bank is not open during uh, the 24 hours. So and I did yes. that, and can I, I bought 25 to your question because we do have a limited amount of time. So can yes, I, but how, that's, much, uh, how much? Not how much? Did you save? How much did you save? Yeah. No. Yeah. How much did you save? You. No. Yeah. How much did you save? Uh, what percent? I don't know. Yeah, I, but, uh, I think my recollection was it was about twelve, fourteen percent, something like that. I, I haven't written left. it out, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, thank I you for saying that. I said a lot of these before the first crisis. That's that's for yeah. sure. Well, well, thank you for saying that. Yet, yeah. and just to tell you, that's why I'm going to start tweeting, because there are some people I know who actually rely on me to give them information like that, and I try to get to those people as I did to yet twice, uh, and there are other people who will get it from my tweets, and the academy does provide. Uh, my time, uh, I, I do analysis for people of their financial conditions, um, and the academy collects the money, and I don't receive a fee for that. The academy does, but I don't. So it's something I do because I love my academy friends, and I'm anxious to have good information to get out. But thank you for calling in. Yet, And yet, did you have another question? No, that's fine. Not yet. I've just come in now, so I don't have – but maybe I'll have questions when I further on. Okay? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate your calling in again, as always. Thank you. Uh, good to hear from You're you. You're welcome. Okay. You're at this welcome. point, Ronaldo, I think we need to move to our uh, lightning round. And, yes. uh, again, always a series of quick comments and insights, and I think Yet sort of touched on it. Uh, and our main topic today uh, is going to be gold. But, again, are there any thoughts you have on any of the other categories, bonds, equities, real estate, uh, in addition to gold, commodities? Yeah, and, and, and are you going to talk a little bit about bonds today, too? Howard? Well, we will get to that in the literacy section after, okay. right after you this. Are. Yes. So I'm not going to get into bonds too much because I think you're going to set that up in literacy and we'll talk about it next time. I will say that uh, one of the things I told yet, I was uh, and, and other people that rely on me, I am now increasingly concerned about all international bonds, all corporate debt instruments, because I'm concerned about the scope and the breadth of the challenges that Europe is facing, the United States is facing, China's beginning to face. Canada even had a downturn last quarter. So I'm I'm really concerned now about the economic peril people are in. And if I'm wrong, they can buy back into the bond market after the danger passes. If I'm right, 
like, yeah, you'll save a whole bunch of money when the drop happens, which did it three weeks ago. Um, with regard to gold, however, I issued a tweet on this, I think, yesterday or the day before, because uh, I was asked this question, and I said, is it too late to buy gold? No. Or can you still buy gold? Yes, you can. Why? Because Hoover Economics is going to create the same result. And I felt that gold, which had been dropping for three days at that point, would have a bounce back because at the end of the day, it's not irrational to be afraid if something really threatening is about to happen. And sure enough, today gold is up. So I don't believe gold, uh, anything below $2,000 an ounce, is a bad idea as insurance, if nothing else. Um, it's, what is it, eighteen, nineteen hundred today, something like that, Howard? I didn't see this morning's figures, but it was in the 1800s yesterday, yeah. high 1800s. Yeah. High 1800s and probably crossing towards 19. So my point to everybody would be, uh, if you have a portion of your portfolio in gold, it's probably a good thing as a safety valve. It's also good because I predict that the American dollar will devalue itself over time. I think the American government, the dirty little secret is that Ben Bernanke and the boys want some inflation. They're looking forward to it. They'd like to have some inflation because it's cheaper as the money we have to pay back to third world countries to the rest of the country and in the world. So we are looking at a situation where we have to protect our purchasing power with a dollar, which is going to be dropping, I think, in value over time. No, let me and ask the way you a question. Gold about is one of those ways. There's other ways too. Devaluation of dollar. I mean, when you have a scenario, not a devaluation formally, informally. Well, in erosion allowed to happen. That's all. Right, but when you have a situation where, let's say, by normal circumstances, the dollar would be weakening, but the largest and most potential competitor for the dollar, the euro, is also weak, and and the currency, other currencies around the world are very much linked to American consumerism, the Canadian, the Australian, and so forth. If you have a situation where they're all weak at the same time, relative to each other, nothing's changed. Is that how you would well, see it, or is that I think completely that's, no, no, I think that's partially true, by the way. And in that, in that scenario you just uh, articulated, mm -hmm. the price of stuff you buy still goes higher. So what you will pay for wheat next year will be higher than what you're paying for it today. So buying food commodities, for example, is a great way to hedge your decreasing purchasing power because you'll be paying more for that wheat in a year. In other words, the dollars you have will get you less mileage, mm -hmm. <laughs> literally. Uh, you'll be paying more at the pump in a year. Uh, you'll be paying more in, 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 in numerous costs associated with international transactions. So you're, you might not formally devalue the dollar, which I don't expect, by the way, but you will see the purchasing power of the dollar eroded, and that will make it easier with a little bit more inflation to pay back some of our debts. And by the way, I couldn't agree with you more that we, are, we do not have a fiscal debt crisis. That was manufactured. That the president allowed it to become the, the, the heart of the conversation is baffling to me at best because he's clearly quite a bright guy. He just seems to be bereft at economics and unwilling, as I said earlier, to lead because uh, he wants to be the professor-in-chief rather than the commander-in-chief. But if he agrees to go back to the job he was elected to do, which is to be the commander-in-chief, I believe like a wartime leader he will rally the public, and you can call the Cold War a war if you would. What Kennedy did is he used the Cold War to get us to put the money up to improve science education our educational system, and land a man on the moon. Eisenhower, as I said earlier, did the same thing with the interstate highway system. So you can use adversity as a way to strengthen your country. Uh, uh, several people have written interesting columns about this recently. And, you know, what would our reaction, what would have happened if our country, in response to 9-11, would have put, and this is Thomas Friedman's comment, put a dollar a gallon 
cost on the need to prepare for what was coming next would have given us an enormous amount of money. We'd have invested in infrastructure, education, all the things we need to win this battle for people's hearts and minds with terrorism. And we wouldn't be sitting here with this debate going on in America, literally eroding so fast, it's hard to believe that the American empire has not ended. And notice I use past tense. Right. Let me go back to gold one quick second before we move forward. Um, in terms of getting into gold, there's always a question whenever anybody's buying any entity, is easy to get into, when do you get out? Yeah, what I signs should people be looking for down the road, gold. obviously, yeah. uh, to get out of gold before it yeah. collapses again? Yeah, and, and let's think, let me get food commodities off the table because food commodities are going to go up for the foreseeable future, and because of climate change and population growth, and other factors, I don't see downward pressure coming in the foreseeable future. So food commodities are probably going to continue to appreciate into the indefinite future from what I can see right now. As to gold specifically, gold, you sell gold when you get clarity on where the economy and the nation and the, globe, and the global financial system are going. When it becomes clear that someone's in charge and we're going in the right direction, or we're about to go in the right direction, that's when I would sell gold. Because gold at that point is an insurance policy on, on, an, on an event that's not likely to occur. And then you want to be investing your money to ride up either in equities or debt instruments to rise up as the economy expands. So you sell gold when you <laughs> listen to this program and we'll tell you when it's safe. But right now it's still time to buy. It's not safe to sell. Okay. At this point, let's quickly touch on our financial literacy section, which, as we mentioned, is about the concept yield to maturity. And the reason we want to mention this is that when people look to buy bonds of any sort, whether they're government bonds, foreign bonds, corporate bonds, U.S. Treasuries, which is a form of a bond, um, what people often look at and forget to dig further is what we call the coupon yield, meaning somebody might have a a bond that's been floating around the marketplace that has an attractive coupon of, let's say, 8%. And somebody else might be selling a coupon bond that has, has 4%. However, the difference in the bonds might be that the 8% bond was issued in the mid-'80s and is now maybe a few years left to run before it, it matures. And the other bond might have been issued 10, 12 years ago and has another 20 years and you're trying to figure out, like a consumer in a supermarket, how many ounces per pound or what per price is actually going to give you the best deal. And the concept that it derives... Let me, let me just throw two things in there, Howard, for clarity. Yeah. Number one, everybody should know that a bond is a debt instrument. So bonds is, is a category of debt instrument that Howard's talking about. So right. it means that you, somebody borrowed money from somebody and agreed to pay interest for the, for the privilege. So right. the yield Howard's talking about is how much interest do I get for the amount of money I put up, and the yield changes. Well, let's say the bond, I have to pay $120 for the bond. But this, this is where I was going to get to, and so yeah. hold on on that. Though. Go for it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, that bond that's paying 8% and the bond that's paying 4% might actually sell in the marketplace. Again, bonds are issued usually for a period of 30 years, and during that time, the original lender can sell the bond, sell it to anybody else who wants to buy it, and there's a price. And it is the price of the underlying bond that varies depending upon current conditions at the moment of the sale. 
So we are in an environment, for example, right now where the Federal Reserve has set interest rates for prime at 0 to 20.25, a quarter of a percentage point. Um, so any bond that's paying more than that could potentially be attractive. However, the price you pay for that bond might be so prohibitive as to reduce your functional yield. So the concept of yield to maturity is simply this. If you buy a bond at any given price, what is the actual return on your investment you would get when that bond matures, no matter how far out it is? So that 8% bond might be selling, let's say, instead of par, par being what's called a hundredth or a thousand um, for for a $1,000 bond, it might be selling at 1400 or might be selling at 600 The price that you pay will determine what your actual return is so that buying a 4% bond versus an 8% bond, the 4% bond might actually have a higher return to you, the new buyer, by the time it actually matures, depending upon the underlying price that you pay. And that, so when you're looking for a bond, and you're talking to your advisor, you always want to make sure that they're telling you what that yield to maturity is so that you understand that you're either earning 3% or 2% or 1% um, in your actual investment by the time that bond matures, not what the coupon is because the coupon, depending on the price you pay, can be very misleading. Now, now what I want to throw in here, Howard, just to bring it back full circle to today's conversation is – so Howard's explaining to you yield to maturity. He's explaining to you what you need to know if you're going to buy bonds. Now let me explain to you why I'm telling you to sell bonds. You see, if the if the yield, the net effective yield, given the price you paid and the coupon rate that's on it, if the net effective yield is, let's say, 4 or 5%, which sounds great in a, in a world where you can't get 2% for your savings, the problem is if the face amount of the bond drops before you before it goes to maturity. So... The, it, many things could cause the face amount of the bond to drop, and it doesn't have to drop much to wipe out a 4% per well, annum we should gain. Say the face amount, we should say the price, the selling price. The price. The price, the, drops. The, the price that you pay for the face amount that's on it. And thanks for the correction. So, so, it, so what you've got to be careful with bonds is, and particularly when, there's, when, when you're in a period like we are with low yield, bonds right now are yielding very little in the way of income, as most people know. So it doesn't take much of a downward pressure on the price of the bond to wipe out the interest gain if you're going to have to sell before maturity. If you can believe that you can buy a bond and hold it to maturity, then, of course, you'll get whatever the face amount is, regardless of what you paid for it. Now, one other problem. What if the bond that you hold turns out 20 years from today the company's out of business? And as we all know from the Great Recession, a lot of companies, including ones like General Motors, went out of business, quote-unquote. So... Yeah, you're always hearing about how the bondholders are fighting for a bigger slice of a bankrupt estate. Well, the reason is they're trying to get back to face amount, which they won't do. But that difference is the risk you run. So in a time like this, where it's, it's un, I mean, the number of times the economy has been this bad in America is at most one or two, besides this one. So it's, it's that serious a situation. You have the unfortunate situation that, Europe is in serious trouble at the same time, although there's some good things reported from Europe just in the last 48 hours. Uh, it's, it's, it's entirely conceivable we're going to go into something much worse than the Great Recession we just started to come out of. That's what I'm concerned about. So if you remember how bad it was in 2008, 2009, 
you say, oops, this one could be a lot worse than that, which I think it will be if we don't stop the slide soon, then all bets are off on bonds because too many companies are going to go down and yield to maturities are going to be crazy and you just don't want to be in the middle of that. You want to have your cash and stand on the sideline. And, and that also gets to another qual- uh, aspect of bonds, which we're not going to cover today, which is the overall rating of a bond and how that whole rating system works or, or fails to work in a protective sense. Bernardo, let's move on. Um, to our last topic, and I know it, it's still somewhat of a continuation of our original uh, notion here, which is how do we know the market has peaked? Yeah, well, I think the reason, and, and that's why I, I, I issued that short sell. When you say to somebody, short sell the S&P, what that means is bet against the market going higher, that the chances that the market will go lower exceed the chances that it will go sideways or up. So that would be one definition of my belief that the market peaked. Why do I think that? And the question probably is a little bit presumptuous, how do we know? It's more why do we think? And the answer is quite simple. In the face of this degree that we've been talking about, of political chicanery, no other word for it, in the face of a lack of leadership from the White House, in the face of a continuing crisis in Europe, which has got to be addressed and is not being addressed yet, and Christian Lagrande, former finance minister for France, now the head of the IMF, had the guts a little over 10 days ago to say so, that there's a structural flaw in the euro that has to be addressed. You've heard that from me on this program for many months. Finally, a major international economist is saying so. And what I'd like everybody to realize is they're not addressing it. And so if you don't address that, and you have these continuing weaknesses in the U.S., you have the Chinese economy definitely going to cut back about 3% you got the Indians that are going to be cut back whether they like it or not, and I, I would guess at least 3%. And you've, as I mentioned earlier, Canada's already been whacked because of the U.S. problem. The U.S. is already back in a recession. Uh, it's just a question of how deep it's going to be and how fast we're going to come out of it and if we're going to be smart or not. And so far we haven't been smart at all. So when you look at all these factors together, and I get to one last factor, we have the very realistic possibility, ladies and gentlemen, and it's amazing because it actually made the front page of the New York Times just two days ago, we have the possibility of a sovereign default. Okay. A bank default is one thing. What happened when the credit system froze up across the global economy in 2008 was basically a freeze in the financial system, the banking system, if you will, globally. The only thing worse than that is if you freeze up the ability of a sovereign nation. Because, and by the way, I'm not a big fan of sovereign nations. I'm just explaining the economic impact. When, when a sovereign nation cannot borrow the money it needs to float itself, uh, it, what happens is you get a sovereign default. And a sovereign default in a decent-sized country is far worse to the global financial system than, than just the 2008 event, because the 2008 event comes along with this one, plus you get a sovereign default. Because a and sovereign do you default think that's, will that's a bank realistic, default. Do you think that's a realistic possibility? And if so, where do you think such a thing might happen? I don't think it's a 50-50 chance. I think it's still in the 20-30% category. Um, But where it would happen would be something like this. You've got, first of all, the word disintermediation. Maybe we should talk about that in the financial literacy. But what that means in simple English is when money is going out of something faster than it's coming in. So there's been what's called a disintermediation on the euro. So if you notice the amount of debt that the euro is able to attract, in its refinancings is going down, and American banks particularly have been pulling out, by the way, it means that it's getting harder for there to be enough liquidity for the European countries to keep funding 
their bank crisis. Now, no one thought, I did, but not many other people thought, it would get to the point where the banking crisis would be big enough that literally the sovereign nations couldn't fund it. So what you have today, and I think it's a good decision in Germany by this, the, their high court, um, which basically said that Merkel did everything appropriately, although they're going to put some handcuffs on her going forward, in terms of the, of the debt restructuring of the banks. What's going on is you got banks in France and Germany, at least two or three in France and one or two in Germany, that are in severe jeopardy of going upside down. And all the banks that hold their debt are therefore in jeopardy. That's what happened after Lehman Brothers. Now, if that happens, and it's clear that Germany's growth has already started slowing, Germany is the engine that's been pulling all of Europe along behind it. It's like a little train pulling a lot of cars uphill. The trouble is the hill's getting steeper. They keep adding more cars on the back of the train, and the German engine, the economic engine, can't keep going up the hill. And to complicate matters, the German engine relies on China for its fuel, sales to China, sales to the United States. Both China and the United States have reduced their consumption. So as that happens, China, Germany has even less to sell, and therefore less fuel to keep the little train pulling the cars up the hill. When that happens, you could have a sovereign default. Now, the good news, and why I'm putting the, the laws as low as 20 30%, Italy finally stepped up yesterday and put through an austerity package. And listen to this, folks. In a country which is far more aristocratic than the United States, actually, they added 3% to the income tax of their top earners. So if you make $450,000 a year or more in Italy, you'll now be paying 3% more in tax, i.e. they address the tax collection issue. Second thing, and by the way, Berlusconi doesn't like that because he's one of those presenters. The other thing they did is they, they had a very creative solution for how to reduce spending because they, they, what they did is they accelerated the deadline from 2016 to 2014 when women would be no longer able to get early retirement from the state, which will reduce the state's burden financially, and those women will stay in the workforce two years longer. So a very interesting idea. But the last thing they did, which was really brilliant, they raised their sales tax. And for people who like to complain about sales tax in America, it's a consumption tax, but the sales tax in Italy went from 20 to 21%. They added one whole percentage point. So they, a lot of revenue increase, some fiscal cuts in terms of spending, and Italy rammed that through the Senate yesterday uh, as a no-confidence vote in Berlusconi, it will probably go through the House in the next 24 to 48 hours, at which point Italy will have achieved a very substantial cut in its deficit through a balanced approach of increasing revenues and decreasing expense. The same kind of balanced approach the United States needs, but has been unable to achieve and has less leadership apparently to do so. So we're, we're really in a bind. Everybody should be listening tonight for a couple things in the speech. Number one, see if, he, see if you believe that this time the president will act? Has he, does he restore your confidence? Do you believe that this time he can be trusted? He will do what he says he will do. And he says he'll stand up for this or he'll stand up for that. Will he actually stand up? His record is not good on that point. So number one, does he inspire you? Number two, does he give you a picture you can believe in? Number three, after the speech is over, watch carefully to see how likely it is that something will happen. And in the speech itself, I'd like to hear the president tell me how he's going to accomplish his objectives if he gets met with silly intransigence, like he got met on the debt ceiling. Because the debt ceiling crisis should never have happened. It was worse than shooting ourselves in the foot at a time when we were already vulnerable, and it's part of the reason why there was no job growth, because right. people are losing confidence. Ronaldo, let me ask you a question, uh, going back to job growth and, and restoring the economy. There's 
what I might term an alternate approach to invigorating the economy through jobs and energy. And you might even call it a plan, which is the oil industry has been promoting recently in a lot of expensive ads, both in print and TV, that if they were allowed to drill unfettered in the United States, they would not only create more energy for us to use and lower the price of oil, but also create something like 1.5 million jobs. What's your feeling about that? Is there validity to that claim? It's preposterous. Um, Howard, it's, 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 it's unbelievably unvarnished self-interest of the oil companies. Again, no surprise. And by the way, I would guess that less than 10% of the American public actually trust the oil companies. Uh, everybody well, I knows. Must, I must. I must add, in a, in a brief CNN poll online, which is not scientifically accurate, but does have some general value. Um, something like 54, 55 percent of the American people who voted in that poll agreed that that yes. was the solution. So somewhere they're winning let's, some let's, battle. Let's start with trusting the oil companies, and then, then we'll talk about the vote. The, 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 what, the, what the poll said. People generally know in the United States of America that the oil companies are out for themselves. If the poll doesn't reflect that, the poll's in inaccuracy. And I think everybody listening to this would agree. It, people, are not, people do not think of oil companies as knights in shining armor. They're riding to the rescue of society because of their, uh, their bona fides. They believe that oil companies are extremely good at making money, and they don't care what they do to make it, basically, and they're pretty smart. Now, in the poll. I think what you were picking up is that a lot of people bought because if you have enough money, you know, again, quoting Hitler, right, the big lie technique. If you really want to screw people up, tell them a big enough lie, repeat it often enough, and they'll believe it. Okay, well, the big lie, that, that drill baby drill, which is, as you recall, has been spoken about for several years now, that that would any, any way help us is insane. What would help us is getting off of oil. Um, the, I, I challenge the 1.5 million new jobs number. I, I sincerely right. challenge it. I think that's a, that's a hokum spokum crazy idea. I don't believe that's real. But, but number two, hmm? okay, isn't this where the Tea Party's basically been saying, get rid of the EPA, get rid of the EPA, um, get rid of government because it's constraining things like oil industry producing oil, right. fuel, and jobs. And, 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 and you know, I remember Watergate, where the secret was follow the money. In other words, if you, if you mm -hmm. knew where the money was going, you could figure out who did what. Where did the money come from to get the Tea Party going? How, who funds that? The Koch brothers. What's one of their basic industries? Oh, petroleum distillates. Okay? So it's sort of like if you are dumb enough as an American citizen to believe that the oil companies have your best interest at heart, you don't deserve the outcome you're for sure going to get. I mean, you do deserve it. You do deserve it. So if you think that you're tired of you being unemployed or your neighbor's unemployed, you want to change that? you got to start being real. you got to watch where the money goes. And when you see where that money's going, you go, oh, I get it. The reason why they're getting me to believe that is so they can make more money at the pump. Oh, why they're doing that is so they can beef up their balance sheet. Oh, they're doing that because they know they're going to start losing their oil wells in the Middle East, and our military is not going to be able to hold on to the Middle East pipeline. They know that. Okay, so they're taking advantage of our collective fear and feeding us a lot of nonsense and if they're, by saying it often enough, getting a lot of people to believe it. By the way, going back to the Tea Party for a second, I, I can't believe how disproportionate their impact is. A recent poll said only 12% of the public, I think it was a Wall Street Journal NBC poll, only 12% of the public saw themselves as Tea Party. But let's say that's low by even 
It's clearly not more than 20% of the people. And yet, they have cratered the economy of 100% of the people. It's astounding that the President of the United States has allowed this to get, to get away with this. It's astounding to me with, with the bully pulpit that he has and with the powers of his office. So it clearly is something he needs to change because in the absence of a leader, a strong leader, we will be mauled by small sectors of the society who have their own agenda, and those sectors typically are being misled by people who have economic interests at stake that want to mislead us. Right. Ronaldo, before we go any further, let me just remind our viewers as we get down towards the end of the show, if you would like to place a call, uh, I'm sorry, raise a question, dial in at 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key, and we'll try to catch you before the show ends up uh, in another seven minutes. Well, that plus, don't forget, for people, most of our listeners listen to this show on a tape delay basis with the MP3 file. You can call a question or send a question into Howard or me before the show. We'll answer it on the air, even if you're not here. And then when you go to pick up your copy of the MP3 tape of that show, you'll have your question answered. So it's a really good time to get things sorted out for yourself, whether it's things you need for your own personal financial protection or whether it's things that you're trying to fit the pieces together to understand better. Call the question in. We'll answer it on the air. And when you pick up the MP3 tape, the answer will be there. So don't hesitate. And please, if you're at all interested in the timeliness of this information, start following me on Twitter. And again, that's Ronaldo Brutico at Twitter.com, for those of you who are interested in that. Also, take this moment to remind folks that next month we'll be on the air on the 13th of October at 11 a.m. Again, as always, it's the second Thursday of the month. You can catch us there, or you can catch us on downloads um, at the World Business Academy site, and that's worldbusiness.org. All you have to do is scroll down either on the right side to Blog Talk Radio. It'll take you right there. Or on the left side, under the main menu, you'll see a listing for radio show. Either of those will take you to the tape shows that you can pick up at any time. Yeah, and one, other, thing, again, uh, well, just one more thing I want to throw out, Howard, and then ask you a question. Um, I'd like, we love it when we get guidance from the listeners about whether we're covering enough stuff in Europe and other parts of the world or too little. We really do want your feedback because uh, there's a wealth of, of research the Academy routinely does on virtually every corner of the globe. And I do I bring up very small amounts of it in this show because I'm not sure the majority of our listeners want to hear it or see the implications. We live in a very small planet that's extraordinarily interconnected. So and I believe it's very small all the time. And getting small. So I think it's important to know some of these things, but we are hesitant to bring too much non US information to the table unless um, you tell us that you would like more. So please, would you like more, would you like less, let us know. I'm sorry, Howard, but you would have had a question. No, my question, I wasn't even a question, it was a statement that we're down to five minutes left in the show, and uh, I was going to ask you to give us your final thoughts. Uh, where do we go from here? These are definitely, definitely challenging times for everybody. Well, um, the I forget who said it, but in a democracy, people inevitably get better than they deserve, meaning that if we don't, as active citizens, take charge of our society, as rational people, away from the crazies on any extreme, we're going to have a terrible problem. I, I want to put in a plug for um, for Buddy Romer. Uh, most people don't know who he is. He's the former governor of Louisiana. He's actually a declared presidential candidate on the Republican side. And there are many things that I'm sure I wouldn't agree with Buddy Romer on. But i got to tell you, there's a lot of what Buddy Romer says I fully agree with. He's an old-style Goldwater conservative, a real conservative. 
somebody who understands that too much money, corporate money in politics, is destructive. Okay, He's a very interesting candidate, and he can't get any traction in the Republican Party. That's the problem. What I'm hoping is that there will be a third and a fourth party in this country. And uh, by the way, for those of you who follow Thomas Friedman, he's recommending people join a third-party effort to get candidates on ballots in various states. I believe that we could and should have a broader conversation in this country because it's inherently crazy to me that someone like Buddy Romer, who is basically talking sense on a lot of issues, can't even get on the stage so that what people discuss at the Republican debate is that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. I mean, I understand the point Governor Perry is trying to make. I think he made it very poorly, and I think he's going to get the heck <laughs> he's going to get beat up real bad by his own party for that one. But my point is, the conversation last night in the Republican debate didn't go to the issues that are fundamental to your job security, to your economic well-being. So what I want to do is have, I want to start calling on people, get more active. And remember, I asked you to get more active in your companies, in your places of work. I want to just point out one statistic, really interesting statistic. The number of people, this came out just today in the, in the USA Today, the number of people who chose to be self-employed has gone down 9% since 2009, meaning the uncertainty, the challenges, people are pulling in their horns going, oops, I better not stick my neck out. This is I could get it chopped off. So when you have that little confidence in the economy that you think your own ability as an entrepreneur can't overcome the hurdles and the obstacles, it means the economy is going to contract. So whereas the official forecasters today, if you look at the, the official forecasters around the, of the country, you'll see that the average are saying it's like 30 to 40% chance we'll be back in a recession. I'm saying it's a 100% chance. Okay? And what I'm saying is not only going down an economic little trough, our job has got to be as a population to get our political leaders to start doing their job so we can make this a shallow dip and get back on the road to recovery. And that recovery, we shouldn't settle for an anemic one. This is not something that we have to accept is structurally going to be required. If we do not do that, if we do not get this thing back on the road to recovery because we, the citizens, took an active hand, I can assure you this is the end of the American empire. We had a great day in the sun. Some people would, 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 would trace it to the Spanish-American War. Some people would trace it to the end of World War I. However you see it starting, we know when it ended. If we, the people, don't get really engaged, and I think it's going to start by getting the businesses you're involved engaged because it's in the business's economic interest to fix this problem. Well, I think Tom Donahue of the Chamber of Commerce would agree with what I just said. And Tom Donahue and I very rarely agree on anything. He, he would agree, I think, that business community now realizes that there's a risk, a, a, a contagion, a fire that's out of control, not just in Texas but in the economy. And as that fire blows out of control, the business community has it as its own economic self-interest to turn this thing around and if they do work at it, as a business community, the politicians will follow. So I urge people to get involved. It's right. And I'm left wondering, what happens if these fires in Texas, and uh, let's hope they don't get worse, but what if they do get worse to a point where Texas needs federal disaster relief to deal with these? Or one of these hurricanes brewing in the Gulf comes through into a highly Republican state such as Texas. Does the governor call Obama and say, hey, we need FEMA aid, and Obama says, I'm sorry, you bankrupted FEMA. We have nothing for you. What happens then? Do they go to Eric Cantor, ask for money? Do they go to Boehner and ask for money? You know, it's going to be interesting to see how these things play out. How, in the last do, few do, seconds, any thoughts on those, Ronaldo? 
two observations. Number one, Rick Perry of Texas already did take money in the last go-round in the stimulus bill. Who's he kidding? So it's not like he didn't take it the last time it was available. But the real question here is, why did the president allow FEMA to have to stop funding the Joplin recovery in order to help pay for what was going on in the drowned Vermont? That's unconscionable to me. Why the president has not even had, not even taken Eric Cantor to task over the question of whether or not we will provide for our neighbors in America when disaster strikes. Now, if, there is, if we're not about that in this country, if we're not about taking care of each other when disaster strikes, then it is true that government has lost its legitimacy. So it's time for the president, to, when people say crazy things like that, say, Mr. Cantor, with all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to have money in FEMA, and if you want to vote against it, I'm going to go on the air, and I'm going to tell everybody in the affected cities, I'm going to tell everybody in Joplin, I'm going to tell everybody in Virginia, by the way, which is home district, who would be cut out of funds from the hurricane. I'm going to tell everybody in Vermont, I'm going to target you, and I'm going to get people to realize what you're really doing and how you're using this as a way to get political power at the expense of your fellow citizens, and they will not stand for it. Mr. Cantor, your problem isn't with me, the president. Your problem is with the American people when they understand what you're doing. That's what leadership's about, and that's what the president's going to have to do. Be interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks. Anyway, with that, Ronaldo, we are actually out of time, a little bit over time, and I appreciate all of you calling in and listening, and also those of you who follow us after the fact. Um, we thank you for tuning in, and again, we will see you next month. With that, let me bid you all good day. Thanks, Howard. Thank you, too, Ronaldo. Bye-bye. Thanks to the audience.